If you have a Bible, I want you to find two scriptures. First, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And then also we're going to look at something that uh, is very important in Ephesians chapter 1. So Luke 6 and Ephesians chapter 1. We'll actually do Ephesians 1 first and then land as we continue to go together through the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 6. Just briefly, um, next Sunday when it comes to teaching and preaching from God's Word, I'm going to... uh, to do something a little bit different, and you've seen the announcements. In fact, I didn't correct it on the PowerPoint announcement. It actually said today we were going to do the Bible in your marriage. We're going to do that next Sunday, but I just want to say a quick disclaimer. Sometimes, sometimes you see an announcement like that, the Bible in your marriage, and next Sunday, and uh, then if you're not married, you say, well, that's not for me. But, um, but, I, but I want to caution you against that um, perhaps thought, and if you're a widow or single or uh, not married, not to say, well, I'm going to take next Sunday off. No, the, the issue of marriage is important for the entire body of Christ in the days in which we live. And so, um, so I would invite those of you perhaps who, who, who aren't married as we approach it, you be my prayer warriors and uh, pray specifically that God would use the scripture to teach all of us what he has in mind when we talk about marriage. And, and I also just, I don't uh, get too far off on this, it's not necessarily a political sermon, Uh, it's just going to be a real practical sermon. God's design for marriage is that it be a megaphone to declare the gospel. And so that's our aim next Sunday. Sunday morning, it's going to be geared towards the husbands. And then Sunday evening, it'll be geared towards the the wives. That's kind of how we'll approach it. So it'll be interesting to see the attendance. We'll get a note on how how marriages are going. Well, um, Ephesians 1 is where we're going to begin. Several years ago, when I was a student pastor, I took a group of, of uh, teenagers whitewater rafting. And we got there the first day, the first session we're about to hit. I think it was the French Broad River. And the way they work it is they unload you off the bus and then you come and sit in a little stadium. Uh, not a stadium, a little, uh, little classroom. And they began to play a video. And, and they said the video was just a safety video just to go over some precautions. What they should have entitled the video was the absolute worst case scenarios that could ever possibly happen to anybody who ever steps foot in the river because they began to go over scenarios and possibilities that I'm I'm sitting there responsible for this group of 7th and 8th grade students watching the video and I'm watching their faces and they were just all horrified. Like we just just wanted to get in the river and go down a little ways, have our packed lunches and go home. But it started to talk about the, the possibility if you fall out of the boat and then you stand on the, this is the big no-no, you don't ever put your feet on the bottom because then it can get locked in some, some rocks. And then they did this whole thing where they showed a, so, kind of a demonstration of it. And then the current, your feet are locked and then the current pulls you under. And I'm looking at this group of seventh grade girls and they're just like, let's go home. And I said, I'm with you. Because what they're saying is the current is so strong it can pull you under. The current of the world that we live in is strong. We talked about this last week. When we talk about the teachings of Jesus, we're talking about he's calling you to go against the current. We talked about last week when I went to that ball game at the stadium and I got there just as everybody was leaving and I'm trying to enter it while everybody else is walking out. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. And Jesus said, many are they who follow it. So if you seek as a follower of Jesus Christ, to obey him, to love him, to treasure him above all things, you're going to find yourself constantly 
constantly going against a culture. Whether you're a college student on campus, whether you're your husband in your home, whether you're uh, at work, wherever you are, you'll find that not many people are headed in the direction that you are going because the Bible says narrow is the way that leads to life. And listen to what Jesus said. Few are they who find it. But the good news is if you're going to go against the current, say if it's like the river, it's, it's helpful to have a Savior who can walk on the water, right? So if you just go with Him against the current, there's coming a moment, there's coming a day when the fallacy of that current is going to be exposed. That's what the Bible talks about over and over and over. Luke 6, we've seen it. Woe to those who are rich now because you're going to be needy. Woe to those who are laughing right now because you're going to weep. And then blessed are those who are poor for you're going to be rich. That's what He's been talking about in Luke 6. But, but look with me in Ephesians if you're there. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, so be at peace. God's working all these things out. He's the one who's going to bring all this together. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now here's our verse that I want to hone in on. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Just real fast, a couple of things you see in Kings, just say, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. In your life, do you find that as a, as a consistent praise in your mind and heart? Praise to his glory. Praise to his glory. He said a couple things. One, you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. And I want you to notice that Paul makes a distinction between those two things. You're not saved just having heard the gospel. Now, hopefully, prayerfully, if you're an active participator at Calvary Baptist Church, you hear the gospel regularly. Let me just go on and share it with you again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope apart from ourselves. But God, because he loves us greatly, because he's rich in mercy, he gave Christ Jesus to die for our sins. He validated Christ's sacrifice by raising him again on the third day. In him we have forgiveness, we have redemption. That's the gospel. Not him and something else, just, just him. Now, just very succinctly, I tried to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard it. But look what Paul says. When you heard it, and then there's a follow-up, and believed it. Now, I think we could all answer the question if you've heard the gospel. We live in such a blessed area of the world. There are areas of the world where what I just said to you in those 30 seconds, they've never heard before in their lives. I've been to places like that. I've been to India where I've shared that same story. And I ask, have any of you ever heard it? And not one person in the entire village said, we've heard that before. But you see, when it comes to salvation, it's not enough just to hear it. You have to hear it and believe it. Do you believe? Do you believe that there was an actual moment in time when Jesus Christ in his body was crucified for your redemption. I do believe it. Now notice what it says. In him, when you heard it, the word of truth, the gospel of yourself, and believed in him, something happened. Look what happens. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? Everyone who's believed in the gospel has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to seal something? 
seal something means to, uh, to uh, in those days, when you'd write a letter, you'd seal it. The, the person writing the letter often had a ring, if it's a government official or whatnot, and then a melted wax on the back of the letter, he'd seal it, meaning it's my mark of approval, mark of authenticity. You can believe this letter really came from me because it's got my seal on it. The mark of authenticity of your salvation is the Holy Spirit. That's the mark of the salvation. If it's authentic, if it's the real thing, you've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So I just want to say, we're going to look at something here from the Scripture that Jesus tells us to do. But I want to caution us against the notion that we can come in. Jesus is not suggesting we do this if we've not been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because Christianity is not about me on every week coming up here telling you to do better and try harder. That's not the gospel. Because we could easily take what we're about to see in Luke 6, and I could apply it to you and say, now, if you didn't do this very well this, this last week, go out tomorrow morning, try harder, do more. Now, every world religion, save Christianity, is a do religion. Do this, do this, do this. The gospel is done. When Jesus was crucified, last words out of his mouth, it is, what did he say? Finished. It's finished. You're sealed with the Spirit if you've been born again. So let's go to Luke 6. Not in an effort to say, here, go try harder with this in your own strength. Muscle it up. Work it up. I put a guilt trip on you to the point where you say, okay, okay, I'll try harder. What I want to tell you is, if you've not been born again, you'll find this to be an impossible scripture to obey. My encouragement to you is, none of Jesus' commands were ever meant for us to obey apart from the inworking of the Holy Spirit. You want a frustrated life, you try to obey the scripture we're about to study in your own strength, in your own might. I take that from Luke 6, 20. He lifted up his eyes on who? On his disciples. On the people who were submitted to him. That's where all these words, if you've got a red letter Bible, all the rest of the words in Luke 6 are coming and they're targeted to his people. So one... Let's all free ourselves up from the expectation that unbelievers would obey these scriptures. Uh, I hear frustrated people all the time who, who frustratingly expect, expect unbelieving people to obey scripture. It's impossible. So just don't spend your life wrapped up in, in, in complaining that they don't listen. They don't listen because look what he says, verse 27. Um, uh, he who has, I, I hear it, but I say to you, who here, right? Verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do so to them. And so my encouragement, what I'm trying to say is, you remember when Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus? When Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus, he did not go find the first blind person he could find and say, why can't you see? If you've been born again, you understand you've only been born again because Jesus got you to see. Jesus got you to hear. If you're in spiritual life, the only reason that's true is not because you were so smart or you were so clever or you were so much better. The only reason that's true is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not by work so that no one may, what? Boast. We don't go around saying, look how smart we are and boasting. No, no, no. If you've been saved, you've been saved by grace. 
Lazarus, when he's brought forth from the tomb, he doesn't go around to the other grave saying, what's wrong with all of you folks? No, he understands that he's only alive because of the blessed power of the Lord Jesus at work in him. So when we come to these commands, Jesus is giving them to we who believe. And I want to take special care this morning to emphasize verse 31. It's often called the golden rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I'm just going to say a few things about these verses. And I got them to all start with the letter P. I'm terrible at alliteration, so we give it a shot every once in a while. Number one, we have to understand this verse positively. Now, up until the ministry of Jesus, they had a rule very similar to this. In fact, the Jewish people were taught this rule all the time. It's in what we call the Hillel, their collection of teachings. But here's how it was said and taught before Jesus. What you do not want others to do to you, do not do to them. Do you hear it? There's a little bit of a difference, right? What you do not wish others to do to you, do not do to them. And can we just say that's not a bad rule, is it? If I don't want other people to steal from me, I'm not going to steal from them. If I don't want other people to insult me, I'm not going to insult them. If I don't want other people to be mean to me, I'm not going to be mean to them. That's not a bad rule. And the truth of the matter is, for most of us who enjoy coming to church and moral people, that's, that's not a real hard rule to follow. Just don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. But I want you to look carefully again at Luke 6.31, and you see that's not what Jesus said. That's why I said we have to understand this rule positively as you wish that others would do to you do so to them he doesn't state it negatively he states it positively but i don't know if you've noticed this or not but we find it easier to obey the negative rules than the positive rules i've noticed this as a parent little children i'm constantly telling them what not to do don't cross the street unless you've looked both ways Don't lick the ketchup off of your plate. Don't leave your toys all over the floor. Don't hit. Don't talk back. Don't bite. Don't climb in that tree so high. Don't, 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 don't. And a lot less time telling them what they should do. Now let's ask this question. Which do we find in the Bible? Negative commands or positive commands? The answer is actually both. However, it's something about the way we're wired. We give a lot more airplay and a lot more spotlight to the thou shalt nots, right? You know some of the thou shalt nots. What are they? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not have any other gods. Don't don't, uh, covet. Don't lie. Don't, don't, don't. But what if I were to ask you to give me the commands from Scripture of what we should do? Can you come up with as many? For some reason, for some reason, we emphasize what he tells us not to do, and we do a whole lot less emphasizing what he tells us to do. So I just wrote down a few things he actually said to do. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Something to do, right? 
Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Something to do, right? Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as in Christ Jesus God forgave you. That's something to do. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So my first encouragement to you is to understand this scripture positively. Now again, just by nature... We, we're, we're open to the possibility of the, of the negative command, right? I'm not going to bother somebody. They're not going to bother me. I'm not going to steal from somebody. I don't want them to steal from me. But Jesus says what you want them to do, that's what you are to do. Give you a little homework this week. Actively seek this week to obey the things Jesus has told you to do. If not, we just started getting this real defensive posture, right? I was thinking about this watching football last night. I just watched it for a little bit. Um, you know in a football team they have offense and defense, right? They got both. Can you imagine a team showing up and just having a defense? And they might have a great defense. We're not going to allow you into the end zone. And then, after they don't allow them into the end zone, the other team punts, but there's nobody to even run the offense for that team. Can you imagine that? And so the team just takes over. Sometimes the church, if we're not careful, we're just defensive posture constantly. No, 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 don't, don't do that. No, 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 don't do that. No, 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 don't do that. But there are things we are to do. So I want us to be careful about being a people who are just emphasize what not to do. And we want to understand this rule positively. That's when we go on offense as the church, so to speak. You know, I, I like what Erwin uh, Lutzer says about the church. He says the church is to be in the world like a, a ship is in the ocean. If too much of the ocean comes into the ship, the ship goes down. But the ship still needs to be making progress. And, and, and we live in an ungodly age, and I recognize that and understand that. But, but what we want to do is just to be all defense. But you know what's actually the defense? The gates of hell. Have you ever noticed that? Gates are defensive military strategy. He says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're to offensively go against the gates of hell, to go into the world, to speak the gospel, to serve other people and not just hide behind our defensive walls. What we do wish others would do to you, do also to them. You know one thing, again, this is attributed to his disciples, to his people. As his, as his follower, do you know what I'm really thankful somebody did for me? On a Sunday evening in April 1991, Someone entered my house, sat down at the table with me, opened up this scripture, and explained to me patiently the gospel. He was a pastor named Steve Lewis. I can still see it in my house, right over there on Catch Point Drive, opening the Bible. Do you have any other questions? Do you believe this is true? Uh, are you ready to repent and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm so thankful somebody did that in my life. I'm so thankful that I'd had vacation Bible school teachers and, 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 uh, and others who pointed me to, to Jesus. As you wish others would do to you, do so to them. We have to understand it positively. And then secondly, we have to understand the rule particularly. He says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We call that the golden rule. Do you want to hear the world's rule? Whatever they do to you, do to them. Isn't that the way that the world lives and operates and functions? 
Do to others what they do to you. That's how most people live. So look what Jesus says about the way most people live. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And if I can summarize all of what Jesus is saying there in a word, it's the word distinct. We're to be distinct as his people from other people. The way that we live, the way that we um, um, walk in the world is to be different. He says, if you just do what they do, how are you ever to be distinct? You remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and place it under a bowl, but on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus says his people are to be a distinct people. The natural response of a person is to treat people the way that they've been treated. If someone yells at you, what's your natural response? <laughs> Yell back. Someone makes fun of you, what's your natural response? If someone embarrasses you, right? What do you want to do? You start plotting revenge, right? And it's in our marriages, it's in our homes, it's, in, it's, it's the way of the world if we're not careful but jesus says we're not to have a natural response but a supernatural one now is this the way that jesus treated people let's just start there when people yelled at him did he yell back when people insulted him did he insult back when people mocked him did he mock back the answer obviously to all those is no so again he's not suggesting that we now go out and try harder But he's saying, if you've heard the gospel of your salvation, if you understand that you were once a mocker of God, and even when you were that way, he reconciled you to himself, that you are a loved enemy, by the way. Jesus is asking loved enemies to love their enemies. While you were yet his enemy, the Bible says, Christ died for you. That's Romans 5, and we looked at it last week, so we won't go all through it again. But then if you've heard that gospel and believed it, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Another thing I thought about briefly watching few minutes of football last night is did you did you you notice this in a game uh, it was a clemson georgia game i don't really care about either one of those teams it's just on briefly before i went to bed last night there are 22 guys on the field and eighty-five thousand people in the stands you notice this and the coaches i was watching a little they did a little pregame thing in the warm-ups the coach comes around and you know who he spends all his time talking to the guys who are about to be out on the field It'd be really odd, wouldn't it, if the coach turned around to the spectators and started doing jumping jacks, right? Everybody doing jumping jacks. Everybody do- I, I noticed this about the crowd. It was, the game was at Clemson, so they had wore that real bright orange, right? The crowd was covered in orange. In other words, they were wearing the team colors. But have you noticed this about spectators of sports? Even though they're not in the game, they want to tell the people who are playing the game how they should be playing the game. And it's not just the stadium, it's the comfort of your own home. You sit there and you're lazy boy and you're watching the game and you start yelling at the team. You start yelling at the quarterback. Why didn't you see that guy wide open? Here's why he didn't see that guy wide open. In front of him are five, six foot six, 310 pound linemen who are running at him with one goal, to obliterate him. All right, that's why he didn't see him. 
He has a linebacker who runs a 4-4-40 coming from his blind side, blitzing that the running back didn't pick up. And so right before he throws it, he's creamed. And you, we, have the audacity to sit on the, on the lazy boy and say, oh, I, I can't believe you did that. The spectators will always criticize. And let me just, let's just be frank about it. There are a lot more Christian spectators than there are Christians. There are a whole lot more Christian spectators than there are people on the field listening to what the coach says. And Jesus is giving instructions not to the spectators, but to the few who say, yeah, I don't just have the t-shirt. I've actually got the uniform sealed by the Spirit. I'm not a spectator pretending and criticizing and saying this is how it should be done. I'm on the field where it's dangerous, where there is a real enemy who's coming after me. If you're a spectator, the linebackers are not blitzing you. If you're just a pretender when it comes to the teachings of Christ, the enemy is perfectly content with you to stay on the sidelines. He's not going to give you much attention until you get on the field. But I'll tell you this, when you get on the field, here comes the blitz. Here comes the attack. Not by flesh and blood, but by the rulers, the principalities, the, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But I'll just tell you this. When you are on the field, you hear the criticism constantly. The booing, or even, equally dangerous, the cheering. We said, no, oh, I've got one aim. It's, it's diminishing God to call him the coach, so I'm not going to do that. I want to show myself approved unto him. Because the, 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 the coach, not to diminish again, but the Lord is not asking me to do anything that he's not first suited up and done himself. And when he suited up to play on the field, he left glory, put on flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if you want to try an impossible task, obey the golden rule in your own strength. Try in your own power to bless others when they curse you. You won't, we won't make it a day apart from the Holy Spirit, to obey this scripture. Let me prove it to you from the Bible so you don't think I'm just making things up. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. How can you go from somebody who just treats people the way they treat you to treating others the way you would want to be treated? How do you go from somebody who, instead of cursing those who curse you, you return it with a blessing. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. I want you to underline it. I want you to write it down somewhere. Memorize it, believe it, trust it, obey it. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who does the working and who does the willing? The answer is the same. God does both of those things. That's why it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, tragic, whole other belief system to think that Christianity is do more, try harder. So if, if we preach sermons in this land and that tomorrow I just got to do more. No, no, you don't have to do more. Who does the doing? Verse 13. Who does the doing? God. How does he do it? The inworking of the Holy Spirit. That's why we go back to say the mark of authenticity of your conversion is not whatever you want, however you want. To, is it this way? I've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. 
I've been sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit, who's now at work in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. The result of that, verse 14, is I do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. God does the willing and the working. So I'm not suggesting here's the golden rule, now go and do it. I'm suggesting here's the golden rule. And here's what God does in you, both to want to do it and then actually to do it. So we have to understand this verse particularly. First of all, that it doesn't say do to others what they do to you. And then secondly, and this is important, is that we cannot separate this command from love of God. Because here's what we hear all the time, right? I hear a constant theme, and you could probably turn on some sort of news program tonight, and you'll hear someone say something along these lines. All we really need to do is love our fellow man, right? It's like the Beatles saying, all we need is love. And then they couldn't get along and broke apart, right? (laughs) That's what we hear constantly. But what I want to say to you particularly is, You will never love your fellow man if you don't first love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. This idea that we can separate the golden rule from the greatest command is false, and it won't ever happen. The golden rule is given to believers submitted to the authority of Christ. So a few few applications is I want you to be encouraged in Christ as we understand this rule particularly and then third and finally we want to understand this rule practically jesus asked a question three different times in verses 32 through 34 right if you only love those who love you what benefit is that if you only give to those who give to you what benefit is that or or those who can pay you back if you only do good to those who do good to you what benefit is that it is not a love that's that's focused on the anticipation of getting something back in return because that's not actually love we'll talk about this next next week a little bit but think about marriage if you love your spouse you don't enter marriage thinking about what can they do for me if you've entered marriage that way it's not going to be very long till you're in the marriage you're going to say this is not working now you enter marriage saying not what can they do for what can i on the basis of love do for them If all we do is love those who love us, big deal. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the world does. There's absolutely no distinction. If we operate financially on the basis of only if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, that's absolutely no different from the world around us. You see, Jesus is calling us to live a dramatically radical lifestyle. C.S. Lewis says, if you want a religion that makes you feel comfortable, I certainly wouldn't recommend Christianity. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? See, we want to respond and say, they fight, we'll fight. They shout, we'll shout. They march, we'll march. They get their guy to get on the cable news and scream, we'll get our guy to get on the news and scream. As you wish that others would do to you, 
do so to them. Let, let's turn to, um, you know, we won't do it for the sake of time, but in the book of Acts, they lived in wicked days in Acts. And do you know what you find the believers in the book of Acts doing over and over and over? It's not a whole, it's not one protest after another after another. You know what you find them doing? Praying and praying and praying and praying. What do you want others to do for you? Do so to them. Jesus says here that this is how you mark yourself as distinct from unbelievers. How you love people right now. I'll close with this because it's an important subject and one I find myself talking to about a lot. Let's go back to the marks of authenticity as a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, he says, we'll get to it in a little bit. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So just a real simple application. Why would you call Jesus Lord and then not treat others the way that you want to be treated? Isn't that what he's saying? Right? Why, why can you call me Lord and then not love your enemy? Why would you call me Lord and then not bless those who curse you? He said, if I'm your Lord, you'll do what I command. When it comes to the Bible, uh, and you just ask the simple question, how does the Bible articulate that I've been truly converted to Christ? There's an entire book of the Bible on that subject. If you want to know if I'm really a believer in Jesus. Because again, again, there will always be a lot more fans of Jesus than people who are actually on the team. A lot more people who are just kind of fair-weather fans. You know what a fair-weather fan is. I would just truly confess to you, I'm a fair-weather Carolina Panther fan. Man, if they're not having a good season, I'm not tuning in. But, oh, when they showed up in the Super Bowl several years ago, almost 10 years ago now, man, I'm all in. And some people are fair-weather followers of Jesus. And, and, and they'll uh, sing to them and give to them and up to the point where uh, it's kind of uncomfortable. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Let me just give you one last thing. Because when you open up the Bible, 1 John, for example, 1 John gives evidences of an authentic follower of Jesus. And you want to know something interesting? Every evidence that John gives, now this is from the Bible, is in the present tense. Every last one of them. But you know what we like to do? And we have trouble with this. We, we got to start learning to articulate, if you've got a true conversion of faith in Christ, we got to learn to start articulating our testimony in the present tense. I got married on June the 16th, 2001. But do you want to know how my marriage is doing? Let's talk about September the 1st, 2013. Well, we say, I've been converted to Christ. How do you know? Well, back on such and such, 1969, 1979, 1980, and those things are all well and good. We've all got a birthday. But you also, the scripture says, have to give evidence of conversion by how you've lived since the birthday. What if I hadn't talked to Julie since September, excuse me, June 16th, 2001? You'd say, that would be an odd marriage, wouldn't it? We talked last night. I love her today. In fact, I love her more right now than I did on June the 16th, 2001, even though back then I didn't think that was possible. Well, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's as your pastor, as your pastor, as your friend, when Jesus here in Luke 6 starts saying, here's what my followers do. Here's what my followers look like. Here's how they behave. Here's the commands that they don't 
don't say go out and try harder, do more, but because my spirit is in them, they're marked by Christ-likeness. Christ loved his enemies, so we love our enemies. Christ cursed those who, or excuse me, Christ blessed those who cursed us. So that's what we do. It's, it's we're in the family, and so we look like the Father. Because you want a simple strategy of the enemy? Simple strategy. It's the easiest trick in the old book. Take two doctrines, or t- take, a, take a true doctrine and add some false teaching to it. You want a true doctrine? We studied it last week in Romans 5. Once saved, always saved, however you want to articulate it. If you were his enemy, he reconciled you. Now that you're his child, he'll never treat you worse now as a child than he did when you were his enemy. If you've been born again, you'll always be born again. You cannot lose your salvation. But you know what the Bible does say? You can be fooled into thinking you're saved when you're not. You can think that you're saved and you're not actually saved. That's the entire book of Hebrews. Right? And he gives you an illustration from the Old Testament. Yeah, they came up out of Egypt, but they sure didn't go into the promised land. Yeah, 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 I walked an aisle in 1984. That's great. Let's talk about right now. That's what Jesus is talking about, right? Present, present tense. And I'm not trying to harp this, that, or the other. I'm trying to get you to doubt salvation. Hey, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness with your spirit that you are his child. But I'll tell you this, I'd rather get a, a, truly, a truly authentic, sincere follower of Jesus to stop and think about it for a moment than I want to give a whole lot of assurance to somebody who's never repented and believed. So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Let's understand the scripture positively. He doesn't say don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to, the, to you. Let's understand it particularly. He doesn't say do to them what they do to you. And then let's understand it practically. This is how we distinguish ourselves. So let me give you some homework. <laughs> Have you got an enemy in your life? I had to think and pray about this. And you know what? The Lord brought somebody to my mind. Not somebody, if they walk through this door, that we'd have a knock-in, drag-out fight. Number one, I wouldn't win the fight. But just somebody in my life I stopped praying for. I stopped loving. There'd been a time in my life I actively, prayerfully pursued him in terms of some... I was walking, doing some exercise this week and praying over this text. And this guy immediately came to my mind. Don't you love it and, and kind of not love it so much when the Spirit just gets a hold of you? And you're just like, oh, okay. You're right. You're right. Somebody insulted you. Somebody at work um, treated you poorly. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Because here's the end game of loving your enemy. It gets a whole lot of people's attention. When somebody curses you and you bless them in return... People say, that doesn't make any sense. You know what? It doesn't make any sense. There's only one explanation for it, ultimately. You have so experienced the grace of God in your own life that you are now quick to extend that same grace to other people. Let's stand together and pray together. We're going to have a time of invitation. It's a time to respond in prayer. Respond if you've got a burden on your heart, your soul, your mind that you want to share with me. I'll stand right here at the front. Maybe you just want to, 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 the Lord's put somebody on your heart and mind. You say, love your enemy. There's somebody who came to your mind. Here's somebody. They've not treated you right. They've not treated you well. In fact, they've cursed you. They've, they've 
ridiculed you. They've mocked you. They've insulted you. They've done wrong to you. And you just confess before the Lord like all of us would that in your own nature, you will never, ever, ever be obedient to this scripture. But you need something more. You need the Spirit of God, the grace of God to extend kindness where there's been nothing but insulting, to extend grace where there's been nothing but ridicule. And that somehow God would use your Christ-honoring response to them to be, to be, as the scripture says, the light of the world, to be distinguished from the way everyone else does it. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. These are not trivial, small matters we've talked about this morning. There's people in the room, they've been really wronged by people, insulted by people. So help us to know that the message is not read this and go try it. Go try harder. The message is, by the grace of God, we've been reconciled to God Almighty. Jesus has died for our sins. There are no sinless people in the room. He's died for our sins. When we were his enemy, he laid his life down for us. And now if you've done that for us, it's, it's inconsistent. It, it's it's illogical, it's unspiritual for us to turn around and say, well, we won't do that for other people. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It gives you pleasure when your children love their enemies. It gives you pleasure when we don't respond naturally but when we respond supernaturally by your grace. Help us. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.